For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Monday, October 30th. We're taping this in the morning. And as of now, there's still no deal between the studios and SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union. They're close. And I think barring some breakdown in momentum, we'll probably have a resolution before the end of this week. But in some ways, the damage of these six months of labor strikes in Hollywood is already done, especially on the movie side of the business, which wasn't as hard hit by the writer's strike in May, but was basically shut down when the actors walked out in July. Last week, Disney delayed its big Snow White remake and Elio, an original Pixar movie, from March until 2025. That effectively took a billion dollars in global box office off the table for the year. Paramount bumped Mission Impossible 8 for a year. There's almost no way that Deadpool 3, which still has a bunch left to shoot, will make its early May date, that traditional early summer Marvel date. And all that comes to head as the holiday movie season is upon us without Dune 2, which was supposed to hit theaters this week. Now that's in March. There are a bunch of others. The Marvel movies like Blade and Fantastic Four have been delayed. Craven the Hunter, a Sony Marvel movie. The Dirty Dancing remake. It's a big reshuffling. And it's adding a ton of uncertainty for the studios and especially the theater owners who depend not just on the major hits, but on a steady and predictable pipeline of movies coming to theaters. COVID disrupted all that, of course. And now just as they're kind of emerging from that, we've got the strike disruption. Not great, especially since these are companies that have either been through bankruptcy or are teetering on the brink. And box office this year is still on track to be down from pre-pandemic numbers though it's up from last year. We even had a surprise smash hit this past weekend with Five Nights at Freddy's. We'll talk about that. Is it really that bad? Is this shuffling going to really harm the industry? Or is this pants wedding overblown? And who are the absolute losers and maybe even a couple winners from this situation? Today, we've got Lucas Shaw back in here from Bloomberg. We're talking about the disrupted movie calendar, the fallout from the strike. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas. Welcome back to the USA. I barely made it. You but did. You're still humming ABBA, though. I've moved on to some new artists, but okay. ABBA is on, a, is on a playlist that I will return to regularly. Yeah, you keep hearing the rumors of a Mamma Mia 3, which I think will probably happen at some point but it is not. And it's certainly not on the schedule for next summer. And that is what we're talking about today because as this strike drags on, I think we're coming to the end of the SAG-AFTRA strike, but it's not here yet. And in the meantime, 
We are starting to ramp up the date shuffling of these big movies that were supposed to come out in the spring and summer of next year. And one by one, they are getting pushed, or many of them are getting pushed. We saw it with Disney's Slate, with the Snow White movie. We saw it with Paramount and Mission Impossible 8, which is now a year later. I think we're going to see more of this shuffling in the next two to three weeks, because typically this time of year is when the slates for next year are set so that the trailers can start dropping with the holiday movies. And it's going to get bad. But you seem to have a kind of hotter contrarian take on this. Well, I I have a question first. How much of the movies do you think are being moved because they won't be ready because of the strike? And how much of it is because there are other strategic considerations at play? And I'm thinking more here of, of mission than, say, some of the Disney titles. Although it applies to Disney, too, because, look, Disney moved, I believe, an animated movie. And it doesn't seem like there's any reason that they couldn't finish that one if they wanted to. Well, a couple things there. First, I think there are strategic efforts underway to rebrand or to kind of reconceptualize the Mission Impossible movie. They thought that Mission 7 was going to be a gigantic hit and would bleed into 8 the next year. I think that didn't really happen on a global scale. It did fine, but not what they wanted. And a lot of people said that having part one at the in the title of Dead Reckoning Killed kind it, of yep. turned people off. So part eight will not have part two in the title. They're going to change that and kind of reconceive it. But I think that's one movie. The Disney stuff, I do believe, is because it wasn't ready. Certainly the Snow White movie. They had reshoots and other things left to do on, on that movie. Elio, which is the Pixar movie, I have been told by people I trust at Pixar that it was not ready, that they had some voice work and other things to do on that movie, and it's going to be tough to make that March date. And, you know, pushing it a year probably didn't have to do that, uh, but they did. The Inside Out sequel, another Pixar movie, is still set to come out in June. And that movie, I am told, is further along and fine, will not be moved. By the way, the Snow White thing, can we just talk for a second about the ridiculous rumors out there on Snow White? It's actually kind of bothering me because they they released this image when they bumped the movie of Snow White with the CGI dwarfs. And yes, the CGI dwarfs look bad. But there's this whole narrative out there that they originally had the, you know, seven merry friends of Snow White that were like replacing the dwarfs. And then there was online backlash and they have now cut that and put the dwarfs back into the movie. That is not how these things work. The dwarfs were always in the movie. So like all the online haters and saying, oh, Disney's, you know, was woke and then it's coming back because of the anti-woke backlash. That's not how it works. You're way more committed to this Snow White drama than I am. I went down a rabbit hole of this. There was this whole rumor that Rachel Zegler was fired from the movie because she was fighting with people and saying that Snow White was going to be a more modern, you know, empowered Snow White. It's ridiculous. I, I hate, I mean, now whenever you see the movie mentioned, it's like, oh, and the controversial Snow White remake. It's like, ridiculous. I feel bad for Mark Webb, the filmmaker. He's a very talented guy, very nice guy. Like, these things take on a life of their own. I just love that we're going to have a Mission Impossible part one and there will not be a part two. <laughs> <laughs> They're just going to pretend that they didn't call it part one. Well, I saw the movie. There was an ending, but there was also stuff 
left open. And it definitely was the part one of a two-part story. And I'm sure that they can... Listen, the, the, this Mission Impossible initially did not have a submarine sequence that started the movie and then it just decided to add it in because they wanted a submarine thing in the second one. So I think it, mostly it'll be the same, but they will probably tweak it a little just to kind of make it feel like its own standalone thing. I don't think it was as egregious a we're just making the first half of something and not telling a story as Dune was. Right. But Dune is source material and people know what the book is. So I think they have to adhere there. Although I've also heard that they are talking about doing a Dune part three. I guess if this one is a if if this one's a huge hit, they got to go for it. Um, Next summer is not looking great, but it's not as bad as you're letting on, or at least to me, until more studios act. Because right now, it's basically the Mission Impossible one, which I think, to your point, had nothing. They might have done anyways and had more to do with the fact that this most recent one underperformed and they just got to make sure they get the maximum money out of that. And then Disney has moved some things. But we haven't seen most of the other studios push. Now, it's possible they will, and we'll talk again in a month, and next summer will look awful. But for the time being, you still have a fairly normal cadence of movies over the summer. You still have a, a few really big animated movies. You still have a shit ton of sequels that I don't want to see. And you <laughs> still have uh, another Planet of the Apes. There's Mufasa, the Lion King sequel. Yeah. Uh, there's there's you know, Despicable Me 4. There's yes. a Captain America movie. There's Venom 3. Uh, that was moved, actually. The Captain, Captain America. America was also moved. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the Marvel stuff is interesting because, yes, they moved it. They said it was strike-related. I do believe that a little bit. But also, Marvel, as we've talked about, is in the middle of this kind of creative netherworld where they don't quite know the path forward and this at least gives them time to figure that out also the jonathan major situation he's the big villain in all these movies gives them time to figure out what's going to happen in that trial and the big one is deadpool 3 because there's no way that movie is going to make its early may release date given where we are right now even if the strike ends this week probably not going to be able to ramp up until beginning of the year maybe by the end of the year but if that movie moves, which has not I mean, widely rumored, but Disney has not officially moved it, that takes the big summer kickoff movie off the schedule. Yeah. And given everything else Disney has moved, there's not a lot to move into it, right? So like for Paramount, they moved Mission Impossible. And then that's why they shifted the Quiet Place sequel into the summer, because it, I assume because it sort of fills the hole. Obviously not going to be as big as Mission, but hopefully will be pretty big. I mean, it's not ideal. I think the companies that have to worry about this are the theater owners. The studios are making moves that they think are in their best financial interest. And the real loser are the people who need butts and seats week after week. We'll talk about the theaters in a second. I just, I want to get to the ultimate outcome here for the studios because we're heading into this fourth quarter holiday movie time. Dune 2, as you mentioned, was supposed to be out this weekend. Won't have that. Marvel's is looking kind of shaky. We'll see how that does. Wonka is actually, <laughs> the tracking is very strong on Wonka, I, to my dismay. And then we've got the holiday movies with Aquaman 2 and Color Purple and a couple of others of these big holiday movies. But not having the Spider-Man movie, Craven the Hunter, not having Dune 2, that is already going to take box office away from this fall and holiday season. And we're going to be down this year after this past weekend with the success of 
the Five Nights at Freddy's movie. The box office for the year is at about 125% of last year. So up. And I think, you know, a lot of the successes from earlier this year, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Mario Brothers, that really helped things. But compared to 2019, we're at 83%. And that's just domestic. Global, the numbers are worse. So not having these movies in the last quarter of this year is going to hurt this year. And I think next year is going to be down as well. Just because there's not a, a Barbie or a Mario? Well, I mean, first of all, we didn't think Barbie or Mario or Oppenheimer would be as big. So there will be hits, but there just isn't the lineup. I mean, we were talking this summer about how it was back to normal and that there were blockbusters every, every weekend. weekend. Yeah. And even though some of those flopped, even though something like Flash you know, doesn't do as well, it's still a big movie in theaters that will juice the box office week after week. And I think next year will look a little bit more like 2022, where, yeah, there were big movies, but they weren't every weekend. And so things like Top Gun had a runway to really succeed because there wasn't a big movie every weekend. The strike will have and has sort of had a pandemic-like impact on the entertainment business. It hasn't affected the rest of the world in the same way. Obviously, parts of the economy, certain folks have suffered. But it hit a pause on a lot of types of programming. And it's not good for a movie business that had not fully recovered and from a, a pure numbers perspective, probably will never fully recover. But th there may be a couple of surprises out there like a Barbie that you and I don't see. I could be wrong, but maybe that like maybe the Twisters movie becomes. For the record, show. I predicted Barbie. You did not. I picked it on my team. Well, I thought Barbie would be big, too. We just neither one of us thought it was going to be one point five billion dollars. True. You also gave me Oppenheimer in our draft. Yep, that was a big mistake. I will I will forever dine out on that. But it's funny because even though all the success of Oppenheimer this summer, Universal just released its quarterly earnings and the studio division at Universal was down despite Oppenheimer because the comps to the previous year were Jurassic World and Minions, both of which were summer movies and did very well. Both of which I believe were bigger than Oppenheimer. They were. And that's the thing is like, those are the kinds of movies you need to anchor a summer because they are guaranteed. Jurassic World was a garbage movie, but it's going to do a number regardless of whether it's good or not. And there are just few of those that are scheduled for next summer. Minions is probably one of them. And Universal knows they have that. But, you know, the other stuff is kind of a, a crapshoot. What you're getting at here is sort of this concern about like moviedom, right? I don't actually think it's going to be horrible for the businesses of these large companies. I just think it's not good for the act of movie going um, and not good for the sort of mentality of, a, of this industry that has felt beleaguered for many years. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. That leads us to theater owners because my buddy Adam Aaron, CEO of AMC, he initially was very positive or at least not upset about the writer's strike because he noted that most of the movies were already written. Then when the actors went out, he started freaking out and looking at the calendar for next year because even if some of these studios will be okay because they can just kind of reshuffle and their stocks don't trade on their movie releases anyways, the theaters, they need the product. and. AMC went through this whole thing this summer where they were fighting with shareholders, finally won the ability to raise more money. They raised about $325 million to kind of keep going. But the rumors about AMC and bankruptcy have always been out there since COVID. And the question is, is 2024 the year that AMC finally goes bankrupt? Man, you can't, you're not going to get me to make that prediction. But I, I would like you to make that prediction right now. Important follow-up. Do you think that there's another Taylor Swift? <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. Taylor Swift will not save AMC. It's gr- it's a great story for them. Big win. She just passed $200 million at the box office. AMC is the distributor and the exhibitor. So the economics are great for AMC there. Beyonce will probably not do the same number. Who knows what they've got in store? Adam insists that his phone is ringing off the hook of other artists that want to do concert films. That is not going to save AMC. AMC needs butts in seats, the kind of butts that only the Hollywood blockbuster billion-dollar grocers can deliver. Well, maybe uh, theaters will finally come around and let Netflix put some movies in theaters. <laughs> well, they should, honestly. I mean, I this is kind of a hot take, but this Five Nights at Freddy's phenomenon from this past weekend, the Blumhouse movie, Jason Blum produced that, they had an amazing performance despite being day and date on Peacock, you know, 78 million. I think it's up to 80 now. And it does send a message that for the right kind of movie and when the service is the right kind of service, meaning less subscribers, you can get people to show up in movie theaters, even though it's available online. What do you think is the right kind of movie? I think something with extremely high fan engagement. The thing that people were missing on, well, I shouldn't say missing. The tracking was showing this for months, is the pre-sales. The fans were buying tickets for opening night and opening weekend in pretty significant numbers. Now, people thought that that would kind of fall off because with a lot of these video game adaptations, there's the super fans that are extremely niche. And then it doesn't cross over into a mainstream audience. For this movie, it did. Younger people in general saw Freddy's and it worked for them. Now, it still may fall off a cliff after this weekend. But if Netflix were to do a star-driven, branded horror movie and release it day and date, maybe it would do okay in theaters because people tend to want to see horror in the theater. Horror is a no-brainer as a genre, but here's a fun question for you. Can you name me a successful Netflix horror movie? No, they haven't really had one. 
I mean, yeah. it's one of the few areas they haven't really gone into. And if they have and we just don't know about it, I'm sure we'll hear about it. No, they, they haven't. And one of the reasons is because horror is very much a communal experience. Right. And maybe, you know, Netflix has indi- not indicated that they are remotely interested in doing theaters other than the BS stuff in New York and L.A. where they buy theaters and put their movies in them and essentially force people in Pacific Palisades to go to their movie theater to see movies that they can watch at home. But that's another story. But the thing with Netflix is if they ever wanted to do an experiment, they could probably get people to go to theaters, I think. Not in the same numbers here. I mean, there's like a sliding scale. Like the fewer the subscribers you have on your streaming service and the more fan engagement there is for the property, that's the sweet spot for getting people to go to theaters for a day and date release. Like Apple, great example. If Apple put out, I mean, they probably wouldn't do a gross out horror movie, but for Apple, they should be able to get an audience for a pre-branded movie in theaters, even though it's available on Apple TV Plus day and date because there just aren't that many subscribers. If they put out Killers of the Flower Moon, the Martin Scorsese movie, day and date instead of at the window, do you think it would have hurt the box office at all? A little bit, but not much. I think the Scorsese fans would have wanted to see that in theaters. I mean, don't start me on another Scorsese rant. I mean, the three and a half hour thing is what really hurt that movie. I love that the theaters got in trouble for creating an intermission to a movie that, by the way, should have had an intermission. I know he didn't want it. Should have. No, he's cracking down. They're, the yeah. studio, Paramount, is like sending letters to these rogue theaters that are adding an intermission to a movie that Scorsese does not want you to get up and pee in the middle of. It's kind of unbelievable. I'm pro-intermission, but I can understand why Scorsese would be upset and crack down on it. All right. Well, my one-sided beef with Martin Scorsese continues. So is AMC going bankrupt? It depends on how the movies do next year. But it's execution dependent. You're saying if there's not a, if there's not something that breaks out, if there's not a few... I mean, look, it's the, is the box office actually down next year? If they do run low on cash, are they able to raise more? There's too many variables for me to predict. It's yeah. not, look, what I can say is that all this stuff happening, all these movies getting pushed is very bad for the theater owners. That's sort of the obvious point. And AMC is probably the most vulnerable. All right. So let's talk about possible winners from all of this. Because anytime you talk about the theaters being effed, you sort of have to talk about Netflix benefiting. Um, now, obviously, Netflix has also suffered in the strike and they are going to have a content problem in the spring and summer as well. But anytime there's an open weekend, I think the streaming services do benefit. This one feels like uh, everybody loses. I mean, yes, there'll be less competition within the, within the traditional mm-hmm. entertainment business. Yes, there'll be less competition for Netflix and maybe people will spend more time watching Netflix or maybe instead they'll be another big summer concert season or maybe there'll be some other outdoor attraction that people glom onto, especially because Netflix is going to be light on stuff next year. I don't know that I see anyone as a big winner here. Kevin Costner has a Western called Horizon, which he independently financed for $100 million more, put his own money into it, including mysterious backers that have not been revealed. And he got domestic distribution from Warner Brothers. They are doing a stunt where part one is going to drop in June. And then part two is coming six weeks later in August. Pretty unprecedented for this size of a movie. This is a huge gamble because if the first movie 
bombs. Warners is stuck with the second movie coming six weeks later, and they can't do a Mission Impossible thing where they, you know, delay it and reboot it. This is a huge gamble, and I think Costner benefits if there's less competition. Are they going to learn from Mission Impossible and not call it Horizon Part 1? You can't do that because six weeks later, there's another one coming. The, the whole reason you do this is because the marketing for the first movie will spill over into marketing for the second. So you spend less on your prints and advertising when you are doing this kind of thing. And I think that's what they're hoping is that the first movie is a big hit, has an audience, and then the marketing and the press for that will spill into the second. Do you think that they will be able to use Yellowstone at all or because of because Yellowstone is released by different company and because there's friction between Costner and Yellowstone that they won't do that. Well, Yellowstone being on will benefit this movie because if everything works out and the SAG strike is settled, Yellowstone will probably go back into production at the beginning of the year. So it could be out this spring or summer. The scripts are already written, I am told, or are being written. And the question is whether Costner is in those final episodes of this season of Yellowstone. And my understanding is that as of now, he is not going to be in those episodes. So he won't get the benefit of being in those and being able to promote off of that. But just the fact that Yellowstone is on will probably remind people that, oh, yeah, Kevin Costner, you know, has a a Western coming out. Yeah, he exists. And he's got, you know, and he's known for this kind of content. I don't know that most people will draw that connection unless there's, there's marketing behind it. You mean that Horizon? I think would... there would need to be like you need to advertise Horizon during Yellowstone. Repeatedly. Oh, well, they could still do that. Warners can buy ads. I mean, listen, like Peacock was running ads during the CBS broadcast of Yellowstone, saying, "Hey, love Yellowstone on CBS? Come and watch the original episodes on streaming on Peacock." That had to annoy the crap out of CBS. Also, I'm sure the marketing for Horizon will say Kevin Costner, star of Yellowstone, in his next. Western adventure. I have to figure out what I'm going to give in and finally watch Yellowstone. It'll happen. I'll do a rewatch with you and then we can go see Horizon together. All right. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, did you adhere to the SAG after guidelines and avoid any struck company content for your Halloween costume this year? Um, No, I was the bear. Oh, that's a good one. Did you have the fake tattoos and everything? I did, yeah. Fake tattoos, a cigarette, the blue apron, white tee. Nice. Well, congratulations. You violated the SAG after guidelines for Good. Costumes. I was happy to. I had a great time. <laughs> One uh, person that would love to someday be in that boat of having union representation is Bethany Frankel. Are you aware of Bethany Frankel? You know, I, I, I could have said yes, but before we were talking, I admitted to you I didn't really know who that was and you made fun of me. So no, no I, shame. I'm not really familiar with her. That's no shame. That's okay. She is a Real Housewives alum who has gone on to a very successful career as an author, entrepreneur. She's been a guest judge on Shark Tank. She has had her own show. And now she is pushing to unionize reality TV talent, which is a pretty interesting concept to me. Is the argument that the world of reality television is is blending with dramatic television more and more now, where the the differences really aren't as stark as they used to be? Totally. I mean, these people are performers. It is a performative act being on a reality show. 
And yes, some people are unwitting and you have people that are just kind of being themselves. But Mm -hmm. you also have members of SAG-AFTRA who are broadcasters or TV personalities that are in that union because of that. They're not necessarily actors per se. And her argument, and I think it's an interesting one, is that this is a very mature genre of television now. These people need protections. There are lots of abuses that go on in the reality TV world. She's argued, for instance, that reality TV stars are subject to onerous non-disclosure clauses when they're on shows. She made a big stink about this, challenging NBC and their practice of requiring stars to sign NDAs. NBC says it's so that they won't reveal spoilers. But Bethany has argued that it's because they want to keep the abuses and the long hours and the drug and alcohol consumption, all of that stuff under wraps. And she's got two big lawyers, Brian Friedman and Mark Garagos behind her. And they're really pushing for this unionization drive. And my prediction is that ultimately they will get it, that reality TV workers will unionize. How does this work? Like, How does this get formed? Who do they go to? Who approves this? Well, I mean, they, there's a, m- a number of different ways they can do this. The most likely route would be that they would join with an existing union and just kind of affiliate with them and ask the studios to recognize them as a union. And I think that that they would probably go with SAG-AFTRA. SAG-AFTRA has made outreach in the past to try to unionize some of these performers. Um, it hasn't really gone well. And the studios have enormous leverage over these people when they are trying to cast them in shows because obviously most people want to be cast. And it's not like any of these people typically have agents before they are chosen to be on these shows. So they have enormous leverage. And I think they probably would go with SAG-AFTRA or potentially one of the -the below-the-line unions. I mean, that's the thing is the workers working on reality TV often are unionized if they're in below-the-line camera union and other things like that. It's just the performers who are not And I think it's probably time to acknowledge that these people are not regular Joes off the street. They are performing an act on these shows. Especially shows with multiple seasons with recurring characters. I get, you know, some shows like The Bachelor, they're one and done. But a show like Selling Sunset, where it's the same group of girls for five, six, seven seasons, like they are assuming personalities and characters and... Yeah, those are the people that SAG-AFTRA has gone after for membership. But I think what Bethany is talking about, and we should actually have her on the show, I hope she'll come on, is having it be the norm. Like when you are cast on these shows, then you just join the union and you get protections and they can file grievances. And, you know, there's already some efforts to make sure that some of the shenanigans that have gone on on reality shows that people have found abusive, like people running around. I mean, a lot of the things that people like about reality TV, people getting drunk and peeing in the corner or jumping into bed with random people, they're pushing back on that stuff and the behavior associated with it that uh, people have found abusive. And I think it's going to work. Does that stuff have to go away if you unionize? Can they still, can they both exist? Good question. I don't know. I know you seem bummed. <laughs> I am. Well, that, that's, you're right. It's half the reason why reality is so great is it's, you know, quote unquote, real life. Anything. I know. Happen. The greatest season of reality TV of all time was the season of the surreal life that had Peter Brady from the Brady Bunch and Mini Me and Brigitte Nielsen and Flavor Flav. That was an all time surreal life. And the behavior that went on on that show was absolutely outrageous and would not be tolerated today. I think many me like woke up in the middle of the night and was like peeing everywhere. 
It was uh, Vern Troyer. It was not not pretty, but it was highly entertaining to watch. So you have to kind of balance that, but we'll see. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. 